Welcome to the Tear Out the Tags podcast, where you learn to remove the labels that are holding you back. Your life is increasingly defined by simple words that are meant to categorize you. These words are turned into hashtags, making you feel stuck with a limited definition of what you can be in this world. Tags, though helpful online, are ineffective at fully describing how big and extraordinary you are. Let's get started. I'm elated to announce that on the show today is a great friend of mine who I've known for quite some time, and actually he is the person who introduced me to the public speaking world in the first place. He is a super connector and an absolute generous person to his core. Alan Stein Jr. spent 15 years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet, including NBA superstars Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, and Kobe Bryant. He is currently a professional keynote speaker and shares how people can utilize the same principles in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. A few of his previous clients include American Express, Pepsi, Starbucks, UGG, and Under Armour. Alan is also the author of the book, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, and host of the amazing podcast, Raise Your Game. Alan, welcome to the show today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. It's great to connect. Yes, you know, I was trying to think back. Alan and I have been friends or acquaintances. We've kind of come and gone through our relationship over the years, but we met back in 2007, 2008. It would have been somewhere around then. It's definitely been over a decade, which is kind of crazy how quick time flies. Oh my gosh, I know. And yet we don't look a day older. <laughs> no, not a bit. <laughs> yeah, more, so you, more you than me, but yes, I appreciate you lumping oh, me in. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Thanks for the compliment though. Thank you. So yeah, we were both kind of working in the ancillary areas in this pro sports world. And I was working an event. I was a Phoenix Suns dancer and you were training high performance athletes. You were in Phoenix for an event and we happened to bump into each other. And I've gotten to watch you just continue to level up for what, 13 years now. So tell me about what you do. Well, now my official title is keynote speaker and author, but, but you know, Speaking simply what I do, it's not who I am. I think the best word to describe me, I'd like to believe is coach. And, and, and for me, the, the connotation of coach is part teacher, part motivator, you know, uh, certainly role model or someone that sets an example for others. But I always like the term, and this was from a book I read a long time ago. My goal is always to help fill other people's buckets. And whether you're filling them physically, mentally, or emotionally, you know, do I have something of value to add to others? And at my essence, that's who I'm trying to become. But lately, that's just been through, you know, the platform of keynote speaking and writing. Yes. Yeah. And you have a book, a fabulous book called Raise Your Game. And I actually want to launch right into that because the very first thing written in the book speaks to tear out the tags. So I'm just going to read it to the audience. It says the single most important thing a person needs for success is self-awareness. This includes who you are, what you can do, what you can't do, where your values come from, and where you need improvement. Nothing I teach or preach in this book will matter if you don't start here. That's like, I just need to throw an amen at you. Like that's your opening line to your book. And it's so true. So tell me why is this the most important step? Well, I know the cliche has been well overused, but it, it's, it's kind of like using a GPS on your phone. You know, there's two things that one needs to know. Uh, you certainly need to know where you're going, you know, the address or the destination, uh, but you also need to know where you are at present. You know, I mean, where you're recording this right now and I'm recording this right outside of Washington, D.C., if someone asked both of us for directions to Chicago, 
our directions would be very different because you'd be telling them to go where you are and I'd be telling them to leave from where I am. So we have to know where we are. And one of the parts that I find very interesting about this is, shoot, even when you and I met well over a decade ago, I significantly lacked self-awareness back then. I, I think I had kind of insulated myself in my own little cocoon uh, and wasn't able to see uh, with the clarity that I'd like to believe I can see now. Uh, so I have been able to experience living part of my life without much self-awareness and then another part of my life with incredibly clear self-awareness. And I look at self-awareness on a few different levels. You know, one is certainly knowing the things that we're pretty good at, you know, our strengths, uh, knowing our dreams, our goals, our hopes, you know, the good stuff. And that stuff's pretty easy to embrace. But it's also having the courage to look on the other side of the coin. And we have to remember there is two sides to every coin. And that's being well aware of the things that we're not so good at, our weaknesses, our opportunities for growth, our insecurities, our fears, you know, and it doesn't mean we need to dwell on those things, but we just simply need to be aware of them and acknowledge that both sides of the coin make up who we are and we should be able to embrace that. And uh, then the real key to self-awareness is taking it one step further and making sure that the way you view yourself is the way the rest of the world views you. And we're looking simply for accuracy. This has nothing to do with pandering for someone's attention or affection, but how we see ourselves, is that how others see us? You know, one thing I always remember about you, you're a very good listener. But if I asked you if you were a good listener and you said, yes, I'm a great listener, and then I asked the five people in the world that know you the best, and they all said, no, she's not a good listener, that would mean you lack self-awareness. You think you're really good at something, but the rest of the world has a slightly different opinion. Uh, what's kind of comical is if I asked you if you were a good listener and you said, you know what, Alan, I'm really not. It's an area that I need to improve. It's a really it's a great opportunity for growth. And then I asked the five people that know you the best and they said, yeah, she's not a very good listener. That would actually mean you have very high self-awareness because you would be aware of the fact that, you know, that's not one of your strongest skills. So uh, the key to all of us to truly be happy and fulfilled and successful and significant is just making sure we've got a firm grasp of both sides of the coin and it mirrors the way the world sees us. I agree. I think it's so important when you do have something that you can be aware of to know that you can move the needle. I think Absolutely. so many of us think that if we have low resilience or if we struggle in a certain area or we're uneducated that we are stuck there, but we're never stuck really anywhere. Never. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. And that's, that's what I really love about your, your whole movement and whole philosophy. When we evaluate ourselves, all it is, is, is data. I mean, it's, it's basically just sterile information. And the only way it, it, is if we assign any emotion to it. So, and it's the same thing for emotions, to be honest with you. Uh, there's nothing wrong with feeling emotions like disappointment or frustration or sadness. They're human emotions for a reason. Now, if those emotions dictate your behavior and you treat others poorly because of how you're feeling, now we have a problem, but the emotions in and of themselves aren't a problem. Uh, I had a friend once tell me who was kind of in that space said, our emotions are designed to inform us, not direct us. Yes. I think it's the exact same thing with the, the labels that we've put on ourselves. It's okay if I can label myself, you know, and being able to acknowledge that maybe I'm not very good at this one thing, or in the past, this has been a problem, but that doesn't mean that that's either good or bad. And it certainly doesn't mean I'm stuck there. All it is is data and says, hey, in my past, maybe I've made some poor decisions that have led me to this label, but I don't have to keep wearing this label. I'm free to choose it, uh, to change it or to rip it off. 
at any point in time. And that change can be momentary. The moment you decide to no longer be defined or confined by that label, it's completely your choice. Yes. And so you've taken this this high performance athletics world and you've turned it into corporate development because you see all of these really strong qualities that you can teach leaders that professional athletes and high performance athletes use. So what do you see in high performance athletes that makes them just top of their game? What, what have you really honed that you've been able to bring to the corporate world that you've been, you've been able to bring to leadership that's unique and just so special to, to your brand? Well, as you just said so insightfully, the principles of high performance, whether it's in basketball or in business, have such high utility uh, that they're basically the same things, which means the mindset of an elite level basketball player and the mindset of somebody that's elite in business will most likely be very, very similar. Now, the technical, tactical and technical sides obviously are going to be a little bit different, but you know, some of the common themes that I've noticed, uh, one is, and this is something I learned from the late, great Kobe Bryant, that the best never get bored with the basics. So uh, imagine if you're in a sales position, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or you work for someone else, I would, I would ask you to figure out what are the basics, what are the building blocks and the fundamentals of what it takes to be really good at sales and figure those things out and then work towards mastery of those skill sets during the unseen hours. You know, in basketball, it's, it's very visual and very, very apparent. Uh, basketball players, the basics are their footwork, their shooting mechanics, their ability to handle the ball, the skills of the game. So if you want to be a really good basketball player, then you need to work on passing and shooting and rebounding and defending. Well, what, are the, what is the equivalent of footwork and shooting mechanics when it comes to sales? And whatever your answer to that is, because uh, it's not for me to define, it's for the person to define for themselves. But whatever your answer is, just make sure you master those basics. So if, if you say, hey, you know, some of the skills of being good at sales is the ability to actively listen. It's the ability to ask insightful questions. It's to have tremendous product knowledge or knowledge of my service, you know, and figure out those basics and then drill down on those. And if you can work to master those, then you'll become the best sales professional that you're capable of. And you could apply this to any area of life. Uh, it applies to marriage. It applies to parenting. Uh, it applies to, you know, teaching any vocation or any area of life, you, you have to embrace the fundamentals and the basics. And so do you find that this is often missing when you go in and you work with a new leader? I, I'm going to kind of speak into this from what I've experienced in corporate is you meet the leader or the, the team of leaders at the, the C-level suite, and they often want to tell you what's broken in all the departments down the line. And so do you oftentimes find that these leaders are missing those tags, the good listener tag, the good questioner tag. I think that's a really big one that we find missing is the curious questioning. I've, I've met a lot of leaders who make assumptions and sort of judgments of their people, but often aren't looking introspectively into themselves. How do you break through with a leader who isn't wearing these tags that maybe they need to be wearing in order to run a successful company? Well, I love that you're going in this direction because ultimately it piggybacks on how we started the conversation. Uh, the first step to changing anything is self-awareness. Mm -hmm. and, and this can be challenging because if I meet, <clears throat> excuse me, if I meet a leader or I meet someone that is lacking self-awareness, then it's up to me to help them to see the light, if you will, to help them uh, to acquire some self-awareness. And that's one of the interesting parts about self-awareness is the way that we heighten it for ourselves 
is by asking other people. You know, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but you know, one of the best ways you can improve your self-awareness is to go back to your inner circle. You know, the five or six people that you know love you, they care about you, they want to see you happy, they want to see you successful, they don't have any hidden agenda, you know, they, they want you to be the best version of yourself. And you basically say, it's almost like a self-report card, if you will. Like, hey, here's five or six areas of my life, kind of the big rocks. Here's how I rate myself in those areas. Can you please have the courage to honestly tell me how you rate me in these areas? This is not an, an exercise in futility where you're just trying to get people to praise you and tell you how good you are. No, this is when you really need some truth. And someone can say, hey, Alan, in this area, you do an exceptional job. In this area, not so much. And, and if people care enough to tell you those things, they're going to help you see some of your blind spots, the things that you simply cannot see or are not aware of. But right. the more you're open to accepting that, then the more you'll see the, the full picture. And, you know, so when I do come across a leader that I believe is lacking some self-awareness, first and foremost, I have huge empathy and compassion for them. Because as I told you, for most of my life, I lack self-awareness. So I can see where they're coming from. So I don't judge them. I certainly don't make them feel bad or guilt them. But I also try to use my emotional intelligence to approach them in a way that will make them more receptive to what I have to say. You know, as human beings, we're, we're kind of wired to be a little bit defensive. We're kind of wired to protect ourselves and protect our ego. So I have to know going into it that if I need to share something with you that I know is going to be pretty hard for you to hear, I want to try to deliver it in a way that you'll be most receptive. And you're not always going to get it right on the first try. You know, many of these relationships, there's going to be some volleying back and forth. But hopefully the most important part you can get them to see is, the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to be successful. Yeah. I want you to improve. I'm telling you this because I care. Uh, if, I didn't, if I didn't care, I wouldn't tell you. I'd move on to something else. Right. So right. Uh, it can take some practice, but, but ultimately that's my goal is, is to help you know, folks be able to see that. And then at the same time, uh, I mean, I haven't got this game mastered either. I mean, my self-awareness is better today than it was 10 years ago. But I know I still have blind spots and I know I want to attract the type of people that care enough about me to help me see those. So I try to remain open anytime I can get some feedback. Yeah. Well, and the, the defensiveness that we run into as we're growing and we're kind of coming into our adulthood is really from so many adults in our lives, so many people around us, so many leaders, teachers, educators, making statements that maybe aren't practicing curiosity and aren't approaching it in the right way, right? We watch people on a daily basis getting labeled and tagged and told who they are rather than ask the right questions in order for them to really expand into that self-awareness. And so my question for you is, was there a switch that flipped when you decided that you were going to seek this self-awareness to become Alan Stein, the, the man you are today, or is it a slow process? It was both. Uh, the, the, the main impetus for me was when I was going through my divorce and we decided to go in for some therapy and some counseling. And uh, we went in together as a couple for a little while. And then I decided to continue to go by myself for almost two years after. And it was one of the best things that I ever did initially. Uh, and this was part of my problem in the past. Uh, a tag, if you will, was I could be pretty closed off and pretty hardheaded. It was mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, you're not going to tell me I already know. And, you know, I know a lot of teenagers in particular go through that stage where they think they know everything and their parents don't know anything. I think I kind of held on 
to that a little bit longer than just being a teenager. So, but for whatever reason, you know, the, the therapist, you know, who was such a life changer for me, she found a way to kind of penetrate through my, my hard skull and eventually got me to see that, hey, uh, I've got some things I need to take a, a second look at or things to, to try and evolve and change. So kind of the, the impetus for the change was immediate. I mean, it was almost like a light bulb going off when she said, hey, you know, I can see some of these areas that have been significantly holding you back and you can change them whenever you want. Uh, so that part was immediate, but the work it took to actually start to unlearn and undo and change is something I'm still going through today. I mean, and that, I don't think that'll ever be a finished product, uh, uh, project and I hope not. You know, no, we, and it shouldn't oh, be. That's the big lie we're all sold, right? Yes. We are always developing and growing. One of my least favorite sayings is practice makes perfect. First of all, perfect isn't real and it's not relatable. But practice makes progress makes yes. so much more sense because we're always meant to be on this journey of growth and development. And it, you know, it's so interesting to me when you talk about going through a divorce being this awakening time. I have a very similar experience. You and I have kind of connected about this before, but you have a really uniquely kind and wonderful relationship with your ex-wife and it benefits your children so much. And I get to watch that just through kind of social media and our, our like day-to-day -day interaction. We have a lot of listeners who are in that blended family broken family. Some of these words that I feel are misnomers and are really not great words to describe families in general. And so I just would love to hear you speak into, you know, these tags of being a single dad, being a, you call it amicably divorced, which I think is <laughs> rare to be honest, but tell me how, how are you guys able to accomplish this? And if you don't currently get along with your ex partner, what can you do to move the needle, even if you only have control over yourself. Well, boy, you just, I mean, you said so many insightful things there, but your last sentence is really arguably the most important part of it is we only control what's on our side of the fence. And for the most part, that's only our effort and our attitude. You know, I mean, really anything else is kind of an offshoot or a combination of effort and attitude. And, and thankfully, this therapist helped me to get past some of my resentment and some of my judgment. And for me, a good portion of self-righteousness that I had built mm -hmm. up and, and got me to get through that and say, look, Alan, you control what's on your side of the fence. And I made a decision that I was going to treat her with respect and civility because I wanted that to be the example for my children. So all I could decide to do was how I was going to treat her and how I was going to respond if for some reason she didn't treat me with, with equal respect and, uh, and civility. Where I'm very fortunate is she took the same approach. So, you know, she kind of tended her garden on her half of the fence and I did mine. And that's why we've been able to remain amicable. Uh, I know in many situations, and I, I can only imagine this would be a thousand times harder, is if I'm trying to do what's right on my side, but the other person's not, they're not playing along. You know, there's some venom coming over from their side. That would make it much more challenging. But I already knew going into it that even if that is what she had chosen, uh, I was still going to take the high road and respond thoughtfully and respectfully with everything that I did because I want to model that for my children. You know, I want my sons to see from me how you are supposed to treat a woman. And I want my daughter to learn from me how a woman is supposed to be treated. And I wasn't going to sacrifice that for anything. So it was really stepping out of myself and my ego to do what was best for my kids. And that wasn't easy because I had a pretty massive ego before. And I, like I said, I had, I was riddled with some self-righteousness and really felt like I had been wronged through our relationship. So I had to work through that 
to get to this place. And, and I cannot stress enough, I have not crossed the finish line by any means. This is still a massive work in progress, but I am very thankful for the relationship and friendship we have and where we are right now. Yeah. To go back to your book, you define out the player, the coach, and the team. And so that's really a metaphor for life, right? You have you, you have your ex-wife, and you have your family. And so it's that same kind of structure of, you know, you can control you and have self-awareness in you, and then you can still show up as you in that team setting with that coach, right? With that other person you're working with. And so it just speaks volumes into this audience and tear out the tags and being able to decide and decipher who you are authentically you and show up, even though it, it can be uncomfortable. You and I've both been through those, you know, these, we call it change. I like to call it progress, but you know, we've, we both have made a lot of changes in our lives and we both can speak into the discomfort of showing up differently and that maybe that other person doesn't accept it right away. And, and we just have to be okay with that. And, and that, you know, a, a lot of it has to go back to, and these are just lessons I've learned myself. I know they sound very tweetable, but, you know, I, I don't worry about being right. I worry more about doing what is right. Mm -hmm. uh, so especially when it comes to being an example for my children. And, and I also realized that there was a, a book that was put out a long time ago called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And it was actually one of my favorite books. You know, yeah. it's really easy because I think each page was technically a chapter and there was like a hundred of them in each of the books. Yeah. And, and I really took that, um, you know, to heart as far as it, when it comes to a lot of the things when in divorce, I'm just not going to sweat the small stuff. You know, I have my values. I have my principles. I'm going to always do what I believe is right for my children. But most of the stuff is the small stuff. So there's no reason in engaging in a little tiff about something that's not that big of a deal. You know, for the most part, uh, anytime I come to a crossroads, I just try to ask myself, hey, will this even matter a year from now? And if the answer is no, then it's usually not that big of a deal to me. It's certainly not worth me getting upset over. Now, if it happens to be one of the big things that might be worth, you know, fighting for, and I say that more on principle, then yeah, that might warrant a discussion or uh, digging my heels in a little bit. But that's also where I'm very fortunate because most of the big stuff, her and I are in complete agreement on. Some of the minor stuff we disagree, you know, disagree vehemently on, you know, and those are things where empathy and compassion are really, really important. Perfect example, you know, since you've known me, you know, I like to share a lot of things on social media, you know, and some people like that, some people don't, and that's okay. They're all allowed to have their opinion. But my ex was concerned that I was posting too many pictures about our kids and sharing too much about our kids. Uh, and she was thoughtful enough to send me an article that was called Sharenting, which is about sharing too much about your kids and mm -hmm. you're leaving this digital you know, uh, footprint of them. And, and how is your, your son or daughter going to feel 10 years later when they're older and you've posted this embarrassing picture about them when they were little and it's still living out there in the ether. So, you know, uh, I had to take a step back and go, you know what, uh, maybe my philosophy on sharing about our kids needs a second look. She's making a really good point about this. And we had a good discussion about it. I had a great discussion with the kids about it. And, and now a couple years later, I share maybe 10% of what I used to. Now, some people might still think it's too much and that's okay. Everyone can have their voice, but that's an example of, I, I kind of thought I was doing what was right by my kids, but I tried to stay open to listening to her opinion. And when it comes to our children, her opinion matters a lot to me because she is the mother of, of my children. You know, just some random person on Facebook, their opinion doesn't matter near as much. So right. uh, I want to always remain open 
to getting that type of feedback. Well, and it's interesting because there are some people in the world that are the opposite. They may not care at all what their ex-spouse thinks, but they do care what their internet following or their coworkers think of them or a number of people in their worlds. So it kind of begs to the point of, are your priorities in order with who matters, not only in your life, and I think this is the conversation about divorce, but it's about who matters in your child's life. And so many, so many divorcees that I have found, they almost wanna like cut the other parent out as if their opinion doesn't matter. And if our listeners today are kind of wearing that tag, contentious divorce, tell us a little bit about what it does for your children. What kind of tags do your kids get to wear that are, that are super positive because you guys choose to, to parent in this way? Oh, for sure. I mean, one, I mean, one of the fascinating parts, I mean, there was, there was even a little bit of confusion for a couple of years because the kids couldn't understand. They would literally say, you and mommy are such good friends. Well, you know, why don't you move back home? And because of their age, you know, I had to find an age appropriate way to explain to them, you know, in, in a kind way, hey, the reason we're such good friends is because I don't live there anymore. And right. when you're older, you'll understand that better. And, and they've got a good grasp of it now, you know, at, at 10 and eight years old. But yeah, I mean, talk about a great problem to have when you can get, get along so well with your ex that your kids are actually confused by it. So, so for that, we were thankful. And, and like I said, I'm just thankful that when it comes to the big values, her and I are in pretty good alignment. And when something does come up that we disagree on, we discuss it. And, and now that the kids are getting older, I really try and involve them in as many discussions as possible. You know, I also, and this is more just in my parenting style, which is a little bit hands-off. I get my kids to make as many of their own choices as they can, age appropriate, of course, but then they also learn the consequences of those. You yeah. know, if, if you don't want to eat breakfast, don't eat breakfast. I'm not going to make you eat breakfast, but when you're hungry two hours later and you're cranky and you're irritable and you're sleepy and you can't focus, that is a consequence of being hungry and yeah. you'll learn just like anyone else learns. So with things like that, yeah, I'm, I'm just... I, I'm thankful to have an ex-partner that, that we can get along this well, you know, that I can get along this well with. Well, and we have this opportunity. I see this in the divorce world a lot. There's a conversation happening about kids with anxiety and, you know, it's hard. I, I watch my kids pack up their things and head to their dads and like they're there for 10 days right now. And that's a pretty long stretch for us. And so, you know, you have this opportunity as the parent to either invite resilience or invite anxiety. And so like I've seen both sides of this wave. And so I want to encourage our listeners that if they are in this world and really it, it, it comes in play with most conflict in any relationship, we just happen to be talking about the divorce world right now, but we have an opportunity in the way that we approach and handle things to invite resilience and resilience seems to be something we're missing. We're kind of not having a conversation about it. That's equal to its counterpart anxiety or depression or some of the hard stuff. So in your mind, what is the problem? Like, why are we not talking about resilience? Well, yeah, I, I love what you're bringing up. I wish not only we'd talk about it more, but we'd put our children in positions to get them to develop it and earn it. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's very similar to swimming. I mean, you can read about swimming, you can watch videos on swimming, but you'll never learn to swim unless you get in the water. Right. And it's the very same thing with, with grit and resilience. I do believe, and with very noble intentions, many parents basically anesthetize their children and put them in this insulated bubble so they never experience failure, they never experience discomfort or anything like that. 
and you're actually weakening their resilience muscle. You know, you're not giving them an opportunity to practice having some grit. So that's where my kind of hands-off philosophy comes in. Uh, of course, within reason, you know, protecting my children and their safety and well-being is always my number one uh, duty as a father. But you know, I let them make mistakes. I let them make boneheaded decisions, and they're going to learn from that. And I allow them to have some of that discomfort. They're upset over something and they're crying. I don't try to get them to stop crying. I want them to experience those emotions and learn how to self-soothe and work through them and, and self-regulate their emotions. So uh, I think if we want to make sure that our children are growing up with more resilience and grit, we have to give them an opportunity to develop it. Just yeah. like you said before, not looking for perfection, but looking for progress. Right. You know, can, can my children be more gritty today than they were a year ago? If yeah. I'm more gritty today, than I was a year I ago. I love that tag. That's a new tag. That might be your tag for the show is gritty. You're gritty. Perfect. Sounds I like pretty though. <laughs> I, I, I'd love it. I'd, I'd wear that one proudly. And I know you would. Well, so speaking of grit and resilience, you are adventurous. So that's another tag I would hand you as a, oh, as you. someone who gets to watch your social media unfold and everything you're doing. So not only are you accomplishing all these amazing things in speaking and in business, and you're just constantly leveling up, but you're also always going on an adventure. I just saw recently you did a rim to rim at the Grand Canyon. So I would love for you to tell us about that and what, what challenges you ran into doing that. You know, here, here's one of the things that I just find fascinating. And I'm so glad we're even having this discussion because while you may be kind enough to give me a label that says adventurous, see, I don't look at myself that way. Mm -hmm. Like I, I look at myself not in a diminishing way, but one of the biggest areas that I'm trying to improve on as a, as a person is to start playing bigger and is to stop having many of the self-imposed limiting beliefs that I've held in my life for a long, long time. So while I'm, I'm starting to, to spread my wings a little bit and do some things like the rim to rim run, uh, I'm not anywhere close to being what I would consider adventurous. And that's why I love this conversation because it just reminds us how important perspective is. And when we do play any type of comparison with others, it's going to be through the bias lens that each and every one of us have. So I'm incredibly grateful and thankful for your kind words and support for that. It's just neat that I look at it in kind of a different way. And that's what makes these labels and everything you're talking about uh, so impactful. Uh, in fact, your work, the, the, the area it's helped me the most is in my parenting because I'm trying to be very careful not to put labels on my children. And, and I know as a parent how easy that can be. It's like so my daughter, my daughter Lila uh, tends to be very soft-spoken and very quiet around new people. So it would be easy if you met her for me to say, you know, oh, Ly here's Lila. She's really shy. I don't want to tell her she's shy. That's, that's none of my business. And, and I know that even saying that, if I'm not aware of it, I, I don't mean any harm by it. But if she hears her father continually tell her she's shy, she's going to grow up believing she's shy. Yes. You know, I have twin sons. Uh, my son, Jack, happens to be a decent athlete. Like most things physical come pretty natural to him. Mm -hmm. You know, he can just kind of pick them up very quickly. Whereas even his twin brother, Luke, not as much. Like he, he needs to practice a little bit more. And, you know, but if I keep just telling Jack, hey, you know, you're such a great athlete. You're such a great athlete. That can do a couple of things. One. If I'm just saying that to Jack and not saying it to Luke, Luke's smart enough to make the inference that, well, I guess I'm not a good athlete because yeah. daddy only tells Jack he is. And at the same time, now I'm pigeonholing Jack. And if I'm saying, well, you're just a good athlete, then is he taking, is he hearing, well, I guess I can't be good in music or I guess I can't be good in theater because I'm only good at physical stuff. So it's amazing to me how these uh, almost innocuous statements can actually carry so much weight. So 
your work has really helped me with that because I'm trying to be, I'm trying not to put labels on my children. I'm trying to provide them with opportunities yeah. and I'm trying to love them and support them in anything that they want to do, but let them carve their own path. Yeah. So we, we talk about the six things written on most tags and it's really where we find our initial tags. And the third thing written on most tags is where it's made, right? Wherever you were born and raised, that's where you were made. It came with a certain checklist of expectations. You so clearly defined how we gather and adopt tags that are implied. So, you know, a lot of us had a situation like that growing up where what we didn't hear turned into our unseen. And so we were standing there screaming, saying like, I want someone to notice this about me, but nobody ever did. They were, you know, noticing maybe about someone else. And so that was just the perfect way to describe that. And I just thank you, first of all, for um, the compliment about my content, but also just sharing your wisdom and depth with me about parenting and about just how all of these lessons, once we insert them in our lives, they really can be used and inserted everywhere. Oh, my, well, my pleasure. And, and it didn't, it, it hasn't gone past me that I didn't technically answer your question from before. So I was uh, going to, I was going to make you go back there. <laughs> podcast guest. You know, so, so one of my issues and tags that I had put on myself is that, like I said, I, I have these limiting beliefs and, you know, so someone would say something like, Hey, you know, I'm going to do this hundred mile race. And my initial default response would be, Oh, I can't do that. Mm. Like, Oh, there's no way I could do that. And, and that's bothered me for a little while. Uh, whether or not I can run 100 miles is completely irrelevant. I don't want my default response to be, I can't do that. So uh, this past year in particular, I've really tried to take a beat when someone says something or offers something or positions something, not dismiss it on face value, but take a breath and then try to lean into it or go towards it. So uh, yeah. I did my first ultra marathon back on Labor Day. And I don't even really like running, but the only reason I accepted was because a friend of mine was going to do it. He reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do it. Unfortunately, I reverted back to the bad, bad habit of saying, I can't do that. But I caught myself. And the next morning, I called him back and said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I, I just signed up. Let's go. And just the sheer act of starting to lean into something that's taking me away from a label I had put on myself in and of itself felt great. And same thing with the Grand Canyon, same thing with some of these other things, you know, and it's the interesting part is, you know, I, I've had some really supportive people in my life. I'm very fortunate. I have not had many people that I've cared about tell me that I can't do things. So mm -hmm. most of these limitations have been completely self-imposed. This is not people saying, Alan, you can't right. run 100 miles. Yeah, it's me saying, I can't do that. Uh, and, and I don't want to get in my own way. I mean, at the very end, you know, I want to be my biggest supporter. So this is something I've been really cognizant of. And that's why I thought it was fascinating that you consider me adventurous when I don't consider myself that yet. But right. the key word is yet. And I try to add yet to a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not something I've done yet, you know, and, and put that dot, dot, dot after it. So now, now uh, most people who've not hiked rim to rim in the Grand Canyon would would argue with that statement, but it's so important that you, you know, this is how we are as humans. It's like, you don't feel that yet. Even though I look at you and go, are you nuts? Like you've been adventurous for years and years now. So it's so important into the conversation of you get to decide the tags you wear, you get to decide when you've gotten there, you get to decide what you want to tear out and you get to define the things that you wear and that you feel and that you believe, it's that identity thing. Oh, for sure. And, and one of the biggest dangers, and this is something, again, another thing that I'm, I'm working on heavily is 
playing the comparison game mm. because ultimately that's where it all starts. Yeah. The reason that I don't see myself as adventurous is because I know and follow a few people that by comparison are much more adventurous than I am, right. but I have to learn and I'm getting better with this. And this goes back to what we said earlier. Um, it's about progress. You know, yeah. I'm, I play less of the comparison game today than I played five or 10 years ago. So I'm moving in the right direction. And yeah. ultimately that's what's most important, but it's easy to fall into that. You know, it's easy and really in any area of our life, you know, I, I live in, in Washington, DC, a major metropolitan area. You could basically give me any external metric and within five minutes, and I know it's a little different because we're in a global pandemic, but in five minutes, I could find someone that's doing better than me in any one of those metrics easily. Yeah. How much money you make, you know, how many people you speak to when you're on stage, how many Instagram followers you have, how much can you bench press, you know, any of those things, no matter how well I might be doing, I can find someone that's doing exponentially better in any of those things. And that's why I'm, I'm really trying not to compare by results or compare by those external metrics. It needs yeah. to be something going on the inside. And, and for me, you know, I don't worry about being the best. I worry about being my best. Yes. And if I can be my best. I'm pretty sure that's going to be good enough to live a very happy and fulfilled life. Yes. Doesn't mean they're going to put me on Mount Rushmore and that's okay because that's not up to me. But if I'm my best, then I'm setting the best example I'm capable of for my children. I'm doing the best work I can do for my clients. And that's, that will be good enough. I love that. I, so I heard you say in the beginning of the conversation, I'm a coach. Is that the biggest tag you wear? Is that the most important, the most standout tag? Or is there something even deeper or something that maybe we wouldn't know about you based on assumptions from the show or, you know, things that we heard you say, is there a tag hiding in there that's really valuable to you that you'd like to share? Well, I mean, if I had to put things in order of operations, I mean, being a father is definitely 1A, but being a coach would be 1B. And, mm -hmm. you know, coach is an interesting one because it has a different connotation to so many people. You know, outside of my family, the most impactful people in my life have all been coaches. So yeah. to me, I, I look at the word coach and I put that word on a pedestal as if, you know, and because I look at it as being synonymous with teacher, with role model, with those types of things. But where someone else hears that and they think back to, you know, uh, playing t-ball when they were 10 years old and they didn't even like their coach. So they don't, they don't have the same reverence for the word that I do. So right. that's why I try to unpack it a little bit and say, hey, my job, ultimately, what I believe my purpose is, is to help other people be the best versions of themselves. Like yeah. that's, that's my essence. Uh, but that starts with me working to be the best version of myself. And yeah. I just look at that as being synonymous with coach because the best coaches I've been around wanted you to be the best basketball player. You could be the best student. You could be the best son. You could be, you know, the best humanitarian in the community. You could be, they right. looked at it from a very holistic approach. Wanted you to be the best human being you could be. So right. that's really how I look at it myself. Well, and it's so interesting because the word is unique to each individual person, but it's so important how you define that word. I have a very similar story with cheerleader for years and years. I wore cheerleader in a negative light because of some of the things that I went through in my high school and college and then professional cheerleading days, but I'm still a professional cheerleader. It just looks different. And so similar to your coach tag, it doesn't really matter how cheerleader is defined in somebody else. It's what I wear proudly that matters. Absolutely. But one thing that I think is fascinating by this conversation is because of the power of language and the power of 
connotation when we hear words. Folks like you and I, given what we do for a living, we have to be able to, with great clarity, articulate to great depth what it is that we do so that someone isn't immediately turned off. I mean, if, if I'm giving a keynote and half the people in the audience have an awful connotation with the word coach, they're not even going to be open to receiving anything right. that I have to say. Right. So you have to find a way to kind of break through that. And, and that's just what's important about language is mm -hmm. I also have to make sure that if I hear somebody else, what one of their labels are, I have to remember that I'm running that through my very biased lens of how I view you know, what's written on that label. And I have to be willing to, to take a deep breath and say, okay, there might be more to it than just the word that they've shared. So yeah. uh, I think your, your movement and your philosophy and your concept really have some depth. And there's a lot of really rich stuff involved here that can help all of us. Yeah. Well, it's a conversation that sits in the middle of mental health and limiting beliefs. There's so much in the middle we're not talking about. And to your point, you talk a lot about performance gaps. And what I just heard you say is we have to fill in the gaps or people will make assumptions about us. People will do their own filling in of whatever they feel like our gaps are. I'm curious, is there an assumption that people tend to make about you based on your brand? And, and obviously you have a wonderfully huge and successful brand as in your business and your book and your podcast and everything you do. But I mean, in your brand as Alan Stein, when you just walk through the door, what you look like, and maybe the first two things that come out of your mouth, maybe you say, I'm a dad and I'm a public speaker. What's the most inaccurate assumption that people make about you? Uh, by far, it's they think I'm heavily extroverted and I'm not. I'm really heavily introverted. If we're going by the definition of where do you get your primary source yeah. of energy, and I get mine from solitude, from, from alone time, yeah. uh, that's how I recharge best. I think a lot of people have been fed that extroverts are people that like to talk and introverts are people that are shy and quiet. And that's, that's not the case. And that's why people are shocked that I can be on a stage literally speaking to a thousand people, be full of energy, love every second of it. There's no place I'd rather be than, than on that stage lighting people up. But the moment I get off that stage, I cannot wait to get back to my hotel room and be in complete solitude. I have no interest at that point in, in mingling with human beings because my tank is empty because yep. I left it all out on the stage. So yep. people are often very surprised uh, that I'm introverted. And, and, and this occasionally can create an issue because if, if it wasn't a pandemic and you had 30 people over to your house and you were kind enough to invite me, you were having a party and I came over, I would most likely kind of be off to myself kind of quiet in the corner, just observing. I would engage certainly if someone would talk to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not impolite and I'm not socially awkward, but I'm not the life of the party. And sometimes, you know, I can kind of have, uh, I don't know what the, the appropriate term is, kind of resting mean face, I guess, <laughs> where I can just be kind of standing in the corner and people are thinking, why isn't Alan having any fun? And I'm totally fine. Like I'm enjoying being there. You know, I'm kind of eavesdropping on your conversation and I'm watching the game off in the corner and I'm enjoying some healthy snacks. Like I'm having a great time, but no one thinks that because I'm just kind of off to myself. So and, that's, they're, and they're expecting the Alan from, from the stage presence that, that they're yes. used to. You know, and, I'll and, be honest. Being on stage, I love. Like that's how I expend my energy. Yes. But then I need to be able to refuel. And this is one of the reasons keynote speaking is, is a perfect for me because uh, while I'm traveling, I'm by myself. I get plenty of alone time in the airports and, and in hotels and so forth. So that way I'm fully stocked and, and fully loaded so that I can give everything I need to give on stage. 
and, and once again, I'm not impolite. Like when I get off stage, if there's some people that, that want to come up and talk or share something, I'm all about that. And I love every second of it. And I want people to approach me. Right. But just know that every time I have one of those conversations, it drains my battery a little bit more. And by the end, I'm on empty. And just like anyone listening to this, when your phone is on empty, I mean, if you don't have a Mophie, you are looking for a, a plug to, to charge your phone immediately. That's what I need to do. So then right. where this has been difficult sometimes in the past is I'll go to a speaking engagement, completely drain my energy, and then I'll come home and it's my time to have the kids. And I need some alone time. I need some recharge time. Yeah. And there've been times where you know, I've been a little irritable with my kids because my battery is empty. So it's not their fault. That's a hundred percent on me. Right. So I've learned that about myself. So now I can manage my schedule a little bit better. Uh, and it's the same thing in reverse. When I have my kids for three days, when I drop them off, I mean, I do a little happy dance because I'm so glad to finally have some alone time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't say that obviously, because I don't love my children. Of I course. say that because now I get to refill and get back to 100, but, right. but that happens to be something most people are, are usually surprised. I'll be honest, I'm surprised, I'm shocked. I feel like I've All known right. you a long time, but I am totally shocked. Cool. So I would have assumed you were also extroverted. Thank you for sharing that with us. And it's just been an absolute joy having a conversation with you. Thank you for blessing us with your content and your wisdom and your self-awareness and all your amazing lessons. And I just can't wait to keep watching you. Oh. I'm going to totally be a bully. Are you ready for oh, this? Sure. Yeah, okay. go ahead. We are Bring doing it. an emboldened climb. We're hiking a 14er. Have you ever hiked a 14,000 foot mountain? I don't believe that I have. No. All right. This that is sounds the pretty app. awesome. This is the invite. So you get to you get to do with it what you please, but you're welcome to come join us this spring. Okay. We're looking at dates right now, so I'll let you know what they are. But I want to see Alan climb his first 14er in Colorado. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, count me in. If the date's available, I would love to do that. All right. Okay, cool. I thought I'd show our audience if you're really willing to accept a oh, challenge. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and, going back, and this is what I love about this, because going back to what we said, if you want kids with more grit, you have to give them practice at being gritty. And yeah. This, you just gave me one more rep to practice, to lean into something and say yes to something that in the past I may have said no to, or may have said, uh, let me think about that, which is kind of a chicken way of saying, you know, I don't want to no do thanks. it. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. If that date is available, I would love to come out. Colorado's gorgeous. And I, I would love to add that to my bucket list. All right. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to having you. Cool. Well, thank you so much thank for everything. You. Your work is incredibly impactful. So I appreciate you. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate that. And thanks for the guidance. You're really the reason that I'm, I've torn out my own tags and I've stepped into my public speaking journey. So thank you for being my mentor and leader as well. Very welcome.